this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. Takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. I don't know about you, but my whole idea of patenting a business, it seems a little cheesy. You know, the idea of protecting your ideas, and there's so many get-rich-quick artists out there offering to patent some, you know, cure for baldness or the next greatest thing in whatever industry they're they're in. And I generally kind of roll my eyes at the idea, which is why I was kind of so fascinated to talk to my next guest, Timothy O'Neill Dunn. Timothy started a company called Black Box where they work in the airline industry and try to help smaller airlines kind of stitch together different destinations from disparate airlines, which as you can imagine if you're not part of Star Alliance or whatever is, is actually a relatively big challenge. So Timothy got the idea to patent his technology. And instead of it being just a lark or some sort of superficial idea, it became one of, in his view, the most important things that was driving his valuation. He sold his business earlier this year to 777 Partners. And this episode, you'll hear about how he went about patenting his idea. He'll also talk about a word I love, which I hadn't heard before, which is patois, essentially industry lingo and how important it is for you to know yours. He'll talk about how do you retain the equity that you have in your business as you grow and how to spot what he calls vested people. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Timothy O'Neill Dunn. Timothy O'Neill Dunn. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Good, uh, good day to you, sir. Good day, John. Yeah, it's, How are you? it's yeah, I'm great. Thank you. I'm great. I'm really pleased to be speaking with you. Let's talk about this company, Air Black Box. First of all, what did you guys do? What was the the business in in kind of layman's terms? In, in layman's terms, uh, we looked at the infrastructure. We're kind of interested not in the front end of the applications that people do to make bookings. We're very much interested in the plumbing. So we felt that uh, when people sort of talk about uh, um, stuff that occurs at the back end that makes a reservation for an airline ticket, you know, it's all mystified. It's very difficult. It's very complicated. Um, so what we wanted to do was to bring modern technology to some really old legacy systems. And trying to explain that to people was really hard. So we just said, oh, it's a black box. Let me stop you there. So I've just come back for, as I mentioned, when we were sort of chatting before, I, I've just come back from, from the UK. So I flew, I took Air Canada, actually. I, I, so when I went, I booked a flight. I went on to aircanada.com. Did you buy it through Air Canada or did you buy it through I, Intermediate? I did. I, I bought it through, what I usually do is go, go to Google Flights, figure yeah. out what the best flight combination is. And then I usually go to the airline itself. 
So, so would I have used your software to, to book my ticket on aircanada.com? Um, probably not, but you could have. Uh, we, we work typically on behalf of the airlines, but really we support um, our customer base is airlines, airports, and even third-party intermediaries. Because the, if you like, the difficulty that you get to. Now, you probably flew with some degree of connectivity. You changed planes somewhere along the way. No, in fact, I didn't. I went direct from, from, from Toronto to Heathrow. And then okay, so, so let, let's say you had uh, found a cheaper price, uh, let's say, for example, on uh, an American airline. Let's just okay. say Delta for the sake of argument. Say sure. you went Toronto, New York, New York, uh, Heathrow, uh, because it was a better price. That process of connection is actually quite complex because you have to go through, you would have to go through two forms of uh, uh, customs and immigration, things that you have done, I'm assuming several times before. Yeah. So what we have seen is that over the years, there has been kind of a concentration of the big three alliances, that Sky Team, One World, and Star Alliance. And those alliances have kind of left some of the players outside of the loop. And so what okay. we did was to look at, can we actually solve um, a macro problem, which is more efficient use of the air transportation networks by diverting traffic away from these concentrated hubs into less used airways that have spare capacity, um, and then to use technology, modern technology, open systems technology to build solutions that would let that be under the control of the person who sells the product. So we are more of, a, as I said, an infrastructure play, but we power um, a number of different players to enable those sort of things to occur, as opposed to having uh, millions of folks sit there tweeting away on abacuses. Okay. So if I'm, if I'm a small regional airline, for example, there's a regional airline here in, in Toronto uh, called Porter. And they, you know, they have maybe a dozen different places they fly to, right. but a lot of people use Porter to connect to somewhere else. So, so, so an airline like that, I'm not like, like Boston or, um, uh, or Washington DC or, or New York. So Porter has the, uh, the, the Q400 planes uh, yep. and people will say, Oh, that's great. The problem for Porter is, that they don't easily connect to some because they're not a member of an alliance. We have a right. similar situation in where I live, which is in Seattle, with Alaska Airlines is not a member of alliance, and they therefore need to have this connectivity. So we built a connectivity engine because when we looked at it, we said, what's the hardest problem that an airline has to solve? And it's building these type of connectivity engines, whether you're a big alliance like the ones that we just talked about, or we actually help to create an alliance in Asia, which is called the Value Alliance. And there are six airlines in that, uh, and it's growing. And those carriers said, well, look, you know, we're low-cost carriers. We don't have the ability to connect between carriers. But boy, if we're in Thailand and we've got people who would like to go to the Philippines, and it's kind of hard to do that if you don't book on a regular full-service carrier, could we make that easy and lower cost? than some of the other carriers who could eventually do that. But boy, we don't know how to do it. We don't have the technology. We don't have the skill set. So we said, yeah, we, we can make that happen. And that's, in fact, what we did 
uh, and that was our founding customer. Got it. Okay. So I, th- I think I now get it at a high level. What was the business model? Like, how did you make money? So, so we make money in a variety of different ways. So you can do this through a license process where you license our software, but generally uh, airlines don't understand that. Uh, airlines are not terribly good at understanding how software works. So what they tend to say is, okay, what is the cost of the transaction? Uh, And I always used to joke that it really is, what does it take to get somebody who stands at the mouth of the jetway or on an air stair, and how much did it cost to get them there? And how can we make that as low cost as possible? So these are called per transaction costs, and we we use a, a per transaction model for most of our customers. Interesting. Well, that's fascinating. So you pay, you know, Alaska might pay you a little tiny bit of every ticket they, they, they book using your sort of backend platform. So that's kind of risky, I guess. Not risky, but I mean, if you're confident in the product, then, then it's not terribly risky. But at, at the beginning, it must have been fairly um, uh, risky for you, not knowing that the transaction model was going to work. How did you sort of get your your head around the idea of using a transaction model? Well, first of all, I have a lot of gray hair, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's really understanding the business. So uh, I, I have a lot of experience in this. I um, I was on the startup team for Expedia, and was responsible for setting up the international network for Expedia. And having basically worked in amongst airlines from the marketing to the technology uh, over a good number of years, I kind of know how it works. Uh, my team was also very experienced in understanding the technology. Uh, my partner, Paul Addy, um, who's no longer with the company, he exited out when, when we finished the project. He and I had worked together many times. And we had delivered solutions to airlines and intermediary companies, be they travel agencies or sort of search firms. So we kind of know what the propensity of an airline or one of these other companies and what sort of models that they they know. So it does require a deep understanding because you have to speak a certain patois uh, to, to these guys that they understand. You have to understand it and be able to explain it. And airlines are very complicated beasts. They are also very focused on uh, things like safety. Uh, But um, if you look at where the customer sits in the hierarchy of an airline, everybody says, yeah, yeah, the customer is the center of everything. Uh, Politely, that's a load of uh, horse poo. Because in in airlines, they're not going to worry about the customer. If one guy's standing at the jetway and the plane's got to take off, they're going to take off. So operational efficiency is number two, right behind safety. And they two actually go together. So airlines are actually loathe to change. And understanding that world and being able to speak that language and understanding what they do and designing products that work in that infrastructure, both from a legacy perspective, but also how today people acquire and buy the product, such as you did when you went to London, those are, it's a, quite a, a detailed skill set that you need to have. Unfortunately, we, we had the right skills. 
Fantastic. So how did you guys, you and Paul finance the, the business? Did you oh, everybody always lo- likes to know the answer to that question. So um, b- basically it came from three sources. Uh, I am, was the individual investor. So I took a lot of my personal uh, um, own individual wealth and funded probably uh, the majority of the activity. But we also uh, were able to fund it using uh, operational revenue. So we very early on were able to get revenues. And I think that's a critical thing that people need to know is how can you get that first customer? And how can you get that first customer to pay you? But the Who was first, your first customer, Timothy? So, so my, well, our first customer was actually Changi Airport. So we solved a problem for Changi Airport because they realized that they had a, a, an operational problem that they needed to solve and they needed some work. So we actually did some project work, which was the basis of how we got started. And, and I think that that's a, that's a critical thing that people have to understand is unless you've got the sugar daddy, and to some extent I was the sugar daddy for the business, um, unless you've got people who are prepared to do that, you really have to get something where you can turn revenue early in the cycle. People who go out there with business plans and say, I've got a great idea, but I don't know how I'm going to turn my first dime, those are people who fail fast uh, because there is no sustainability behind that. But let me go back to the question because there was Mm -hmm. a third source of funding that we had, um, and this is not always available to a lot of people, and that is public government uh, uh, incentive funding. Now, most governments around the world actually do uh, provide some form of incentives to startup companies. Uh, And uh, we were very fortunate in that one of our team is an expert in this area. So we went to the UK government and said, look, we have this great idea. We think that it will generate uh, income for the company uh, in foreign markets, which obviously got them their attention. So we started off by saying, what are the things that the UK government, who has various schemes for this, it's actually called Innovate, I-N-N-O-V and the number eight. And Innovate UK is very good at helping to provide some of the seed funding and intermediary funding after you got going. So we were able to acquire some grants and some co-funding from them uh, that enabled us to, to, to work early on in the business. And that really helped us to write the right business plan. But they also, it wasn't just a question of funding. It was also a question of some of the expertise they were able to give us. And we are very grateful to uh, Her Majesty's government for doing that, even if Brexit is the problem of the day. There you go. So with the Innovate uh, f- f- um capital, did, did that come in the form of debt or did they take an equity position in the business? Was it a grant, like a gift? How, how, did, how did this, what was the structure? It, it was, um, it, it was in two, we actually had multiple uh, grants. Um, I think in total we've had three, plus we've had some tax rebates as well. So the, the, the funding came in the form of grants or co-investment. So when I put up some money, they would put up a, a comparable amount. The UK and Europe is somewhat interesting is that they don't typically need to take a, a stake. So it is in effect a grant. Free money. Uh, it, look, when government gives you money, it's never free. Trust me. <laughs> 
So how, how big did you get this business before you decided it was time to sell? I'd be curious, you know, either revenue or if you can't share that you know, kind of number of full-time employees, just to give a sense of sort of what the operation was uh, in terms of size when you decided it was time to, uh, to exit. Um, well, the, the first caveat I put on was that it was not something we had decided that we would do. Um, it, it wasn't sort of an overt thing that we said, let's go target somebody, um, that, which is a partially true statement because if you are an entrepreneur, you must always keep an eye open for the opportunistic sale and come, on, come through the door. And that's ultimately what happened with, with us. But uh, the, the, the metrics that we were looking for was sort of numbers of customers, breadth of product lines, plural, uh, and obviously staffing. We tried very hard to run a very lean operation. And so, so Paul and I, it, he took care of the, the development side, I was more the product guy. Um, so if you like, I had commercial and product and he had, um, I would say, the, the, the technical development side. But we both worked hand in glove and could pinch hit for each other. The, the, at the end state was uh, we were about 30, 35 uh, guys altogether. Um, and now I think the current company, uh, we just passed our first year anniversary under the, uh, the guise of 777 partners. Um, and I think the number has just exceeded 50. But again, we, we took a very different approach from traditional companies. We looked very hard at what was the best way to build, um, if you like, a core. And once we were comfortable with the core and we could make that expand and contract as business flowed, what we found was in general that the ideal number was going to be around 40 to 45. We now are growing faster than that because we're going into different markets, both in the product side and both and in geography. So I think that the that there was no overt decision that says at this point, when we reach this metric, this is when we're going to sell. We took this opportunity when it walked in the door and we felt that it was a good fit. Uh, and that's proved to be the case in, during this past year. What was the, what was the trigger of that? You, you mentioned the opportunity kind of came to you. Maybe you could describe that. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, is kind of a sort of happenstance sort of situation one of the things that I have done uh, and I still intend to carry on doing is um, we provide a sort of advice, some of which is compensated, some of which is non-compensated. But we were approached by an airline uh, that was hoping to start up. And they said, look, we need some expertise as well as an IT platform. And through a, a colleague of mine, um, uh, we got a, a phone call that said, look, can you come meet us? We're in Miami. Uh, let's see if we can, uh, you can help us to solve a conundrum of what we want to do. And it was during that dialogue with helping this airline get to get started, which hasn't uh, launched yet, um, that the investor realized that there was a good opportunity, as it turned out, 
the, the, the push came from the investor in the airline who said, hey, we know that we can probably make more money out of the IT side than we can out of the airline, but we are attracted to the aviation business as a whole. Uh, and, and from that flowed a number of different things, but that was the genesis of the dialogue. So this was an investment company, like a private equity group that was investing uh, yes. in airlines? So I now sit uh, in, inside the, uh, the holding company. So we're a hold co, so the same partners as a hold co. Uh, you can find us on the web at www.777part.com. Uh, and be careful because if you get, type it wrong, you'll get to an interesting site. Uh, the, <laughs> the company has several verticals and they came out of a hedge fund business in New York. They transferred down to Miami and the, the two partners, um, the managing partners, uh, Steve Pasco and Josh Wanda, uh, understand the value of money. They understand how to make money from money. So they, they're always on the lookout for businesses that turn good cash or have good cash potential. And obviously the aviation business is one where large numbers of transactions take place and the amount of cash that flows through the system some works. Um, the, 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 they operate like a PE firm but they're not constrained in the same way that PE firms or VC firms are. This, this is a fund and you must use up your money. No, that we, we operate in a different manner. So we have a far more flexible funding model, which allows us to be far more opportunistic than most, uh, I would say, PE or VC firms. Okay, so let's go back to, you're still running Air Black Box. Um, you get called Actually, I, have to, I have to correct you. No, I'm not running the business. Um, it was a very important part of the exit that I stopped running the business. Uh, and I want to, to, to dive into that just a little bit, if I may. Sure. No, uh, we've turned it over to uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Ian Rayner, who is now the CEO. And so he sits in the UK and he is running the business. He is the CEO. Uh, my role has changed. I still have a, an innovation and product role inside the company. And of course, I, I will help it and I sit on the board, but I'm no longer operationally responsible for anything inside the company. Um, to, 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 so just to be clear, no, I don't have that role, but obviously I, I care about my baby. Yeah, no, I, I get that. But I, I just wanted to go back to before the acquisition, before you'd met 777 Partners, um, was you were you were at the time, I'm assuming, in, in still involved in the business on some level. Had, had you recruited Ian to, to run yes. things at that time? Okay. Yes, uh, so, I recruited Ian to take over the commercial role because the, the role of operations process um, product, marketing, et cetera, was becoming too much for one person. And I'd worked with Ian before in several other companies. He, he comes from originally packaged good. He'd worked at P&G. He'd worked at Accenture. And he, he had a good range of skills that I felt that we needed in the company in the commercial role. I also was looking for somebody who ultimately would be uh, the replacement CEO one of the things that I've always tried to, to do in my personal career was do myself out of a job. 
And uh, when Ian came along, he was the ideal candidate for us. Um, uh, we knew his temperament, we knew his skills. And so it was a good thing to bring him on board. And we therefore, when we did bring him on board, we created um, kind of a gang of four. So four of us ran the business. Our, our other colleague was David Viss, who ran the creative uh, and some of the product design work. And we therefore ran it as a group, um, pretty much as peers, uh, which I think is something that is always very hard to do uh, inside a startup. But because we'd known each other relatively for a long period of time, uh, it was relatively easy. How did the conversation, I'm just trying to get into the mechanics of, of the conversation in Miami where 777 said, actually, hang on a minute. We, we don't want to hire you to consult for us with this new airline. We actually kind of want to buy your company. Like, did that come up over dinner? Did, were you in the room? Like, how, did, how does that sort of change from, hey, we want to hire you to do a project for us to, uh, we want to buy your it, company? It actually came up almost just like that. There was, um, we were in the middle of a conversation. It was, I think, the second or third conversation when, um, the, the investors had uh, moved me outside of the, the room where the other conversation was taking place with the airline personnel. And um, out of the blue, they said, look, we're really interested in your business. Are you interested in, in um, selling? And, what was your reaction? Um, I think there was that very famous moment where you go, is this an oh shit moment? Uh, or is this a, are they kidding? You know, you, your mind will go through a bazillion things all at once. And I think I came out with a good enough stock answer that said, why not? And so that the conversation progressed from there. Because I think one of the things that 777 realized was and this this came out sort of afterwards, was it wasn't just a question of them acquiring a company. They wanted to have some guys, if you like, on their team, um, and we tend to use chats, male or female, uh, who had the expertise in the space. And so if they were going to invest in the aviation sector, which is what they wanted to do, they wanted to have somebody on their side who had a broad uh, understanding of, of the business and they felt that I could fulfill that role. And that is part of what I do today. So, so they, it wasn't just a question of buying the business, it was buying the, the skill set as well. Okay. So they made it clear from the, from the beginning that they wanted you to stay on, that they didn't you know, want you to hand them the keys to the business. And Oh, absolutely not. So, so yeah. the, um, this leads you into, what was the deal price and what, mm -hmm. what was the, the end result. Um, I had no intention of walking away and just saying, here you go, here's the keys. You, you push those two buttons and you know, out, out spits cash. No, I felt that, um, that there were two sort of driving factors. The first one was I felt this was a little premature in terms of time. Uh, I would like to have spent more time building the business. Uh, but this opportunity came along, which was something for us to be part of a larger whole. And I liked that idea that we could be with other people. We had, you know, danced with several other people, um, both, both on the broker slash investment banker side, 
but also with direct funds in the past. Um, but I, I think we felt um, amongst us that this was a, a good fit for us, that there was the capacity of capital to grow the business, which was something that we felt we could definitely take advantage of, but also that there was a, a longer-term vision that they had, not just around this individual part of the business, but other businesses of a like ilk, which would then result in um, synergies and higher return of revenue. So how did you value the company in your own mind? I mean, before the, the, the yeah. conversation of price came up, had you guys, the four of you, did you have sort of a sense of what, what the business is worth? Um, yes. And in, and in fact, um, after this is not the first approach we received, uh, but after the first one, we'd actually gone out and spoken to some friends uh, because over the years, you know, uh, Paul um, had sold his company previously. Uh, I had consulted to a number of companies in the past uh, who could give us some idea of what the number is. And, and frankly, you know, if I put my finger in the air, I wasn't too bad at understanding what those numbers would be. So we came up with a valuation that we thought was realistic, a range, obviously. And it seemed to match where um, 777 felt that they could value the business. So we kind of were in the right ballpark. How did you come up with the number? What was, what was the, the valuation technique you used? It, became- uh, obviously, I can't reveal that because that, it's confidential. But the, the valuation was driven in part by basically three factors. There was, if you like, a cash number that we could have accepted. There was a commitment for long-term investment. And then there was the issue of how the compensation would be paid out. Um, so one of the things that was very important to Paul and myself was that the team that had been with us, particularly those who had been with us for a long period of time, we wanted to ensure that they uh, had a say in it and that they would benefit from this. So we actually uh, gave up, both Paul and myself, a significant chunk of the stock. We gave it to the employees, the, the loyal employees who'd been with us. And that, that was, uh, was something that we insisted that those guys get the compensation uh, for when the sale took place. What's significant on a percentage basis? Can you give me a ballpark? Is it like less yeah, than 10? No, no, we, um, it was more than that. So essentially I had the controlling share at the time. Uh, so it was about a third of the company we gave, we gave away. Why did you feel so uh, passionate about about that. I mean, I, I, I could play devil's advocate and say, but Timothy, I mean, you, you were the one who came up with the idea. You're the one with the industry expertise. I mean, why are you giving away a third of your company? Uh, it, it's an interesting question. You could go through all the justification for it. It could be altruistic, it could be whatever. But ultimately for me, it came down to, I felt it was the right thing to do. Um, these are people who are incredibly loyal. They, they gave up time way over and above what you would expect. 
Um, I think, you know, I've experienced Silicon Valley. I've experienced, obviously, the, in the Seattle area, uh, what it's like the tech firms here. And generally, you find that there are two types of people. There are people who are vested and the people who are not vested. The people who are vested are those people who will, you know, you can call them up in the middle of the night and they will jump. And uh, I was incredibly fortunate, Paul and I were both fortunate that the team that we had, the core team of people who had the skills and managed the outliers of the business, they were just that sort of person. And believe me, we, we burned through several people uh, before we got to that core group. Uh, but this core group uh, of, a, of about 20 people, I would say, were clearly well worth it. And I felt I had an obligation to them. Was there um, any sort of promise or inference that, hey, when, you know, when things work out, if we ever sell, you'll participate? I mean, w- w- was there a promise made or was it a – do you know there what was, I'm there getting was, at? There was a commitment made. Um, mm. So that commitment was not made on day one, but over time, uh, I felt that it needed to be made because these guys were already doing far more than they needed to. And I felt that even before we sold out, that, that we needed to give back. Got it. Okay. That's helpful for sure. So, so to go back, you're having this conversation with 777 Partners and in your mind, you and, and your colleagues have come up with evaluation. Um, I'm curious to know, and again, I, I understand we can't talk about what that number was specifically, but I'd love to understand what you, uh, what, what factors you contributed to your calculation. So where I'm going with this is what I've heard you say is that there was, there was definitely some per, you know, there was some transaction revenue you, you enjoyed, um, in particular, the product in Southeast Asia that you launched. So you had a kind of a per, you, know, you had a bill, billing model where there was transaction fees. It sounds like there was also some consulting uh, that maybe was more project-based. And so I'm, in my mind, and I think listeners would be curious to know, did you place the same valuation on the consulting revenue that you did on the transaction revenue? Uh, was there a difference? How did you think about those sorts of things? Um, so, so we didn't really factor in the consulting piece. Okay. But um, so, so let me kind of adjust your question to say, sure. how did we come up with evaluation? Mm-hmm. And we valued it in basically two areas. The result of the transactions and the potential marketplace that we could go after because we were an early player in that market. The second part is sort of a result of that. It's the, the, the yang part of the yin piece. And that is the IP that we had created should be worth something. So one of the things that, that um, I had insisted we do was to codify the IP as early as possible. Now, that's always a question, you know, do you, there's, there's swings and roundabouts when it comes to uh, getting patents, because in some cases, a patent can be restrictive. In other cases, it can be hugely valuable. We believe that the, the concept behind uh, what we call it, which is our core product, which is called ACE for the air connection engine, um, of its ability to have 
a different mechanism for generating how airlines combine their products using techniques and capabilities far beyond what traditionally had been in place, we felt that that was new. So one of the things I spent personally an awful lot of time doing, and believe me, it was both expensive and time-consuming, was the generation of a patent. And uh, in February of um, 2017, we were granted that patent, and it was made final um, uh, last year. We have since extended that out, and we're going to file more patents over some of our ideas. So the IP value, as well as the, the transactional value, became the two pillars of the valuation. That's helpful for sure. What exactly did you patent when it comes to the ACE product? Like what was patentable, I guess, is because I think a lot of listeners will be like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to patent my process, my technology, my IP. What, what did you learn? What, what specifically did you patent and what did you learn about patenting, you know, ideas as uh, Oh, we, we could have a whole separate uh, podcast on, on the process of patents. Um, but I think the, the, it came down to the traditional ways of how airlines cooperate or airlines sell uh, is driven by some very old legacy systems. And those legacy systems are largely controlled by just a handful of companies. Um, what we felt we needed to do was to come up with a solution that could enable essentially the cross-selling and the combinability of almost anybody. So what we did was to build an engine and then proved it. Now, in, uh, I'll cut short the, the, the whole process of the patent because obviously, like most people, we file a patent, we file a bunch of claims, and the patent office immediately threw them all out. And they, they said because of the nature of the beast, we couldn't possibly patent a process. We had to patent core IP, that is core intellectual property, that is a piece of technology. And that was something we were able to do. Not only could we talk about it in theory, but we could demonstrate it in practice. And that was something that really attracted the examiner to us. And he said, okay, so you've created your theory and you're showing it to me. That is actually very valuable. And uh, in fact, there, there's a very famous um, uh, patent case it's called Alice and in the United States, which essentially invalidated many, many different patents over the issues of process. And a lot of people felt that process patents are the way to go. We said, mm, no, we think we needed to have some core IP in there. And that's what we were able to do. So ACE, our air connection engine, or in, in the papers called the travel connection engine, because it's not specific to, to airlines. It can work with any type of product. That combination capability, the algorithms, et cetera, that go with it, the processes, a sound, how you make this work in an automated fashion was unique and nobody had ever done it before. So to go back, you're, in your mind, you're valuing the company on these two sort of pillars, the, 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 the transaction revenue. Uh -huh. And it sounds like they're, you're not only valuing your existing transaction revenue, um, you're also l looking at the potential of the market and saying, if we can capture 
you know, more of this, there's a tremendous amount of transaction revenue. So it's both sort of, you're, you're looking at what your, your existing transaction revenue and, you know, the, the, the potential of that market. Yes, I think to, to anybody who's looking at um, selling your company or taking an inbound investment, that's always it. I mean, you know, everybody talks about the hockey stick. Everybody talks about, you know, the five-year projection. We took a, a little bit more pragmatic approach and said, you know, this is what we think. Uh, and, and you can imagine kind of a grid that is horizontal and vertical. In the horizontal side, it was, could I get more customers? And what would those customers generate? In the vertical side, it was, can I actually sell more product through um, these channels that we've created or create more channels? And we felt that, that we could do that. And we're still proving that point that, yes, there are more customers that we can bring on board. Uh, and yes, there are more types of customers in different areas. So you can continue to grow out horizontally. But vertically, we also had to drive as this, this more product, which meant we had to continue to develop new capabilities inside the engine uh, of being able to sell more stuff. Um, I, I, I would love to, to say, if I can just finish up here, I always wanted to have our tagline, which is connecting airlines to sell more stuff. And that, that's kind of what we did because the, the essence of what we do is about the connection. Um, our new tagline for Air Black Box is travel.connect. And that is what we do is, is that capability. And building cross-linking and capability of connection is a core of what we've ended up doing. And it's something that is of value to right across the value chain of the, uh, the airline space. And so, I mean, what I'm hearing you say across these two kind of, uh, you know, variables or, or drivers of value is that in both cases, both, uh, you know, the, 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 the patent itself and the value of that, as well as the sort of size of the transaction market, you, you are really valuing the company on, uh, on sort of the, the future vision as opposed to what most of the people that, that I talk to for this show, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a multiple of EBITDA. Oh, you know, we, we wanted six times EBITDA and they were offering four times and we went back and forth on what multiple EBITDA. Um, what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that's you weren't really valuing the company based on its on its sort of existing financials. It was really on this. I, I don't want to say esoteric in in, in a uh, pejorative way, but it was it was more about what's the potential of this product, what's the potential of this. I, I think you've got the key word there, John, which is, um, and that's not unusual in our space, let's call it travel technology, uh, because it's become very competitive. And I think a lot of this is driven from a historical perspective that there's so much legacy stuff still in existence that needs to get reformed. People who can rise above the parapet and, and demonstrate uh, new technologies and new capabilities, um, they are the ones who are likely to drive valuation driven from potential rather than actual. But it's, so, it's very, it's still very vague. Like how, how do you, I mean, are you doing a, is there a spreadsheet somewhere on your desktop that you pull up and say, well, if we could just get, you know, 3% of the transaction volume of the third tier airlines in Asia pack, that's, 
$16 million of revenue and, and we want three times 60. Like, like, is there some spreadsheet or yes, is. is it all just sort of what it's, what it's, what yeah, it's the, really the spreadsheet had uh, two major tabs in it. One was the IP value and the other one was, uh, was this transaction uh, expansion, as I okay. said, driven horizontally and vertically. Okay. So I think I understand how you would have done some transaction because you could have estimated the value, like, you know, the volume of transactions and figure it. So I get that. But how do you put a price on the IP? So that's, that's difficult. Um, but in fact, there are people who do that sort of job professionally. So you can go to IP valuation firms. Um, there is, they're just making it up, aren't they really? I mean, are they actually putting, because there's always two values to IP. One is the value of something that you can defend yourself in order to operate in your space. In other words, to isolate your space so you're not threatened externally. And the other one is, um, is who could you go after and say that they are infringing on your patent? Please understand, I'm not advocating that, but it is something that when IP is being valued, uh, the valuation is driven by those two metrics. That is what you can protect yourself so you don't have other people come and, and bash on your door and how you can be aggressive if you do. So there's uh, uh, Nathan Meivold is, is famous for his, um, his particular way of being a patent troll. Uh, I, I really don't want us to be a patent troll, but they make a lot of money out of patents that other people use. And, you know, you occasionally hear of, of different things. I mean, the, the, the example I always like to use is an iPhone and the Android versus iPhone battle. Um, in each device, there are over 5,000 patents that apply to the, the devices. And you've probably seen that Google was never involved in the fight with Apple, but Samsung was. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, do, did you copy me? Did you do this? Did you do that? So the, the, the world of IP and IP valuation it has not been something in the past that existed in the aviation and travel world very deeply. Uh, Amadeus, who's the largest tech provider inside our space, has been filing a large number of papers and uh, gets a lot of them pushed back because they just are trying to you know, corner the market in IP. When we went at this, we felt that there was a clear, definable white space that we could go after and we could protect and we need to protect it. And, and inside 777, we have um, a, a very good team of lawyers who are also focused on ensuring that the, the companies, uh, the, the groups, companies are in fact protected. What does it cost to patent an idea? <laughs> you can spend years doing this. I would say there was, um, it, it, it can be as low as a few thousand. It can be as high as millions. You know, if you're trying to develop some things, um, fortunately, again, in the area of IP, where we are based in Manchester, one of the things I did was to ensure that we were based near a center of learning so that we could have the interchange between academia and our, and our group. And we got a lot of support from the, the University of Manchester in this area. They, they tell the story of uh, a piece of IP that was being developed in the, uh, the pharmaceutical area. 
that went all the way through to stage three trials and was about to go into stage four when it started to come apart and they had to abandon it. And they had some very large number, I think it was nearly a billion euros worth of investment tied up in this that eventually they had to give back to their investors because they were not able to execute and reach the end level. So IP can be very uh, uh, simple and easy to do, but I would strongly suggest don't expect to file yourself, fill out the form, go in there and do it. Nor necessarily should you look at, uh, you know, those guys who say, yeah, patent my idea and, you know, you can make a bazillion dollars. No, you have to spend time to go find a good um, patent attorney to work with you. Then you have to file appropriately, not just in one jurisdiction, but lots of jurisdictions. And you have to find a way to be able to protect it and be assured that that is not an inexpensive proposition. I imagine. So let's go back to the transaction itself. So, so to, to the value that 777 Partners was seeing, they clearly saw the both both sides of the equation. Did they? Did they? When they looked at you, did they? Was it? Um, was it the patent that they valued more than the transaction volume? The potential of the transaction volume? Did they? Were they equally interested in both? Was there a strong sort of lead investment thesis, as they said? I think they were more interested in the transaction than the potential and the the IP potential because that the the IP side is far more speculative um, and harder to to value, as as we pointed out earlier. So um, as a result, that was correspondingly uh, discounted or, or, or dealt with accordingly. Got it. So, and again, if I'm getting into territory you can't reveal, I totally understand, but I think people would be curious to know when it comes to the proportions of the deal. And again, you mentioned there were three kind of, uh, you you know, uh, there was a sort of a cash at closing. There was a a long-term, presumably sort of play an earn out or you know, I don't know what, how it was structured, but some sort of long-term mm-hmm. payment. And then um, there was the, the payment that you provided to employees. Um, are, are you able to share it all sort of proportions? Again, I, is it the majority cash where you sort of thin on cash and long on future? What, how did you guys get there? Um, I, I think I would prefer not to, to give uh, a direct answer, but let, let me okay. just explain it in a little little bit of this. Um, what we wanted to have happen was that the deal would stand on its own. So if I had decided to uh, hand over the keys, that would have been a done deal. But there is, um, there is this long-term side of uh, what I am doing now is working inside 777, and we are looking to expand the portfolio, mm-hmm. not just in, to, to say Air Black Box is one company, and that's just going to be the only company in that vertical, is we are actively looking at others. So I spend a goodly part of my day now. So I am actually now a full-time employee of 777, uh, working inside the body corporate uh, uh, for this, this goal. I think the, the, the business itself, we did want it to stand alone. We did want it to, to have, I would say, a fair way of being valued so that the return would be such that whatever happened, in my view, and this was a personal view, was that the, the team, they got their money no matter what. 
And the speculative part of that would be based upon, um, again, some control that I might have or stimulation I could bring to the business to continue to keep it going. And that is still an obligation that I have. And I, I'm glad to say that I think it, it does work because we've still been able to grow the business as a result of my direct uh, support for that business. Fantastic. And, and it's a great segue into my last question. Um, where do people reach you? Because I, I imagine they're going to, they're probably people that, that may be potentially uh, interested in having a conversation with 777 or just seek out your advice generally. Uh, are, do you do connections on LinkedIn? What's, what's the best yes. way for people to say so hi? You, you, can, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, just, uh, just make sure you spell my name right because otherwise you get nothing. And I do have a weird name. So just, just make sure that happens. Um, I, and, and, and we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, and, and so you've got that if you want, there'll be a build. Uh, build you can com. find me at, uh, uh, if you just go into uh, the 777 partners website, as I said, www.777part.com, you can find me under the uh, operational team. So you can see who we are, one of the, the three guys there. Um, but let me give you perhaps a philosophy here. Please. Um, I was very fortunate in being able to start a company. I've got a wealth of experience that um, comes from many years of consulting, many years of working inside different corporations. I have a kind of a, one of the few people who I'd say has a good 360 view of the island travel business from technology to, to sell. And I have a, a personal philosophy that I would like to give back. Um, I've done a fair amount of mentoring, um, over the past years since I left Microsoft. And uh, I am always open. Um, typically, to give you an idea of scale, I will get somewhere around uh, 100 propositions across my desk um, every year. And if even if I say no, I will give positive feedback to the people to say, hey, this is what you need to know. And here's a guy over here I can send you to that you should go talk to. Because I think that's part of the problem that exists in, in any sector whatsoever is how do you get connected? You've got this great idea and it burns in your soul that you think you can solve it. Then you go, how do I get connected into that space when I don't really have a footprint? And it sounds like you're, you know, it, it, it's, it sounds like you're willing to be that for folks. I am, I am more than prepared to help through that process. Um, and, and if it's, if it's a great idea and we get great ideas and we explore them, we do have um, an investment team at 777 and uh, we are currently evaluating, I think there's uh, in the short list, there's about four or five of them at any one time. And we will make some investments, some which will become public, some of which won't be, but we have a different vision of where we're going. And, and, and just the, again, from our investment thesis is we're looking more at infrastructure rather than people who've got that fabulous idea that their set is going to be virally as big as um, Gwyneth Paltrow's group or, uh, <laughs> or the Kardashians. But okay. it's, that's kind of the, the way we think about it. Fantastic. So uh, Timothy O'Neill Dunn on LinkedIn, we'll put it in the show notes. Timothy, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, John, and uh, best of luck to all of you out there.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.